When I was a child, I was a bit what my mom would refer to as maybe being hard-headed. Now, if any of you have ever been accused of being hard-headed before, you know that um, some life lessons that come very easily to some maybe are a little tougher for you. In fact, maybe you're a little bit stubborn. In fact, some of the very easy lessons of life can become very painful, like in learning how to be obedient. Mom says, don't touch the burner on the stove because it's hot. And you might get burned. Well, being hard-headed, you got to see for yourself. And second-degree burns on the palms of your hand later, you know, that was a tough lesson to learn. And maybe you struggle sometimes with warning signs. Let's say you see a sign that says, caution, wet paint. Well, how do I know if it's really wet or not? So you touch it and you got paint all over you and you're mad because someone should have warned you that 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 paint is wet and it's not dry yet. You also learn tough lessons about not everyone who says they're your friend has your best interest in mind. Even if they double dog dare you to stick your tongue to the frozen flagpole, it's never a good idea. Then, of course, there's the old, oh, go ahead, stick your head in there. It won't get stuck. It'll be okay. And then when the maintenance is trying to cut your head out of the chair, you realize some lessons are pretty tough. Now, as tough as these lessons are, there are some life lessons that have much tougher consequences. Today, I want us to look at a story in the life of David and a very tough lesson that he learned. As you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6, let me remind you a little bit of the background of David going on here. David was anointed king when he was very young, maybe about 15 or even younger when he was anointed king. And you may remember the story, the prophet Samuel was sent to Jesse's house and Jesse brought out all of his sons. And Samuel was to pick from these sons to anoint the next king. And he saw the oldest and he looked strong and he looked tough and he looked kingly. And Samuel said, surely this is the next king. And God said, no. Well, how about this one? No. How about this one? And God reminded the prophet Samuel there that the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. And he goes through all the sons. And Samuel says, Jesse, isn't there anyone left? And he said, oh yeah, the youngest, he's in the back tending sheep, but surely you don't want to talk to him. And Samuel sends for him, he comes and God says, this is him. And Samuel anoints him as king. Now, let me tell you, when I was 15 years old, had I been anointed king, I probably would not have handled it as well as David did. I could not imagine living with me as king. If you think I'm taking out the garbage, you got another thing. I'm the king. Or my sisters fight me over shotgun in the front seat of the car. Oh, uh uh-uh. You try to take my shotgun, I'm going to yell off with your head. You know, I would not have been very easy to live with. But David purposed that he was going to honor God. And he knew it was going to be some time before he took the throne. And so David, having just been anointed king, goes back to the field and humbly tends sheep. 
David, as a teenager, saw the power of God in his life as he purposed to honor God. David found himself in front of a giant, a Philistine giant. And against all earthly odds, he says, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he accomplished the unthinkable that day. It was 15 more years. He was 30 years old when David took the throne. But David had established a greatness that was marked by humility and obedience. And when David took the throne, he had a choice to make. Am I going to continue to honor God by being obedient to him? After David became king, he quickly established a united kingdom. And he desired that Jerusalem not only be the center of his government, but that it be the center of worship. Now, during the 40 previous years of the reign of Saul, there had been no mention of the Ark of the Covenant, which was the symbol of God's presence among his people, being in the midst of Israel. But David realized that his reign over God's people, the success of that was dependent upon his obedience to the king of kings. And so David says, I am going to return the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, and it will be in the midst of God's people. This is where we pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart, And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ohio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they had came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and he took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah and God struck him there for his error and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. But David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. So we see in the decision to honor God that David sets out to bring the ark of God To Jerusalem. Now, if you remember the Ark of God, it was a box made out of wood, but it was covered in gold. And it was about four foot long by two and a half feet wide by two and a half feet tall. And this was the symbol of God's presence. It was the place where God's presence dwelt in a very special manifestation between the cherubim or the angelic beings who were there to protect the holiness of God. Inside the ark contained the the covenant between God and his people. This included the Ten Commandments. This was the most holy object. 
And in fact, God gave very specific instructions on how it was to be handled. Only the Kohathites from the clan of Levi could carry the ark. And to carry it, you had to insert poles into the rings on the side of it. And no one could touch it except priests, or else they would surely die. So David sets out to move the ark. Now, a description of the scene here that we see in verse 3 and 4 is that he takes 30,000 men with him. And it says that they are worshiping and they're singing and they're dancing. And he strikes up the orchestra. And it says literally they are worshiping God with all of their might. Now, to imagine this scene, I'm going to think back a few weeks when our choir and orchestra presented God with us. How many of you guys saw that? What an incredible, incredible evening of worship. Our choir joined with other choirs and the choir spilled over into the balconies. The orchestra was taken over the stage. And we just had a wonderful night of worship. And I saw people that night that were worshiping with all their might. I didn't want the night to end. Now imagine that times 75. That is the scene, that is the magnitude of the worship service that we have going on here. But in the midst of this incredible worship service, we see that a very terrible mistake was made. Because in all the excitement of moving the ark with good intentions to honor God, David failed to do it God's way. God had already said in Numbers chapter 4, 15, chapter 7, verse 9, the only way you're to move this holy object is by carrying it on poles. And what do we see? In uh, verse 3, so they set the ark of God on a new cart. See, in David's zeal and excitement that he was about to do something so great for God, he failed to consult scripture on how God wanted it done. He chose here actually the world's way, the Philistine way of moving the ark instead of God's way. Throughout this incredible scene, David is being disobedient to God the whole time. That brings us to our first principle in this very tough lesson that David learned. And that's this. Excitement and zeal for God does not replace obedience to God. Excitement and zeal for God will never replace obedience to God. Does God want our worship? Yes. Does he want our excitement? Absolutely. But is there something that God wants more? If we look over in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we see the prophet Samuel that is confronting Saul, David's predecessor, over a specific sin. God had given him specific instructions. Saul disobeyed God. And Samuel is confronting him on it. And Saul says, well, but, but, well wait, Saul. Wait, Samuel, I have all these animals, I have all these sacrifices, I have all these things that I want to give to God. But look at Samuel's response. Samuel replied, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. 
The only offering that God was interested in that day was a fully devoted heart. One committed completely to honoring His Word. See, it's not about getting it right with respect to our performance. It never has been. It's about being right with God in our hearts. It's not religion that our Father seeks of His children. It's a relationship. And the offerings that we bring to Him mean very little if they're not motivated by a heart filled with love. And if we truly love Him, we'll do what He commands. Jesus with His disciples before He goes to the cross. He says this in John 14, 15. He says, if you love me, you will do what I command. Obedience is not always easy. Roger Stahlback, who led the Cowboys, Dallas Cowboys, to the World Championship in 71, admitted that his position as a quarterback who did not call his own plays was a source of trial for him. See, Coach Landry sent in all the plays. He told Roger when to throw. He told Roger when to run. And only in emergencies could he dare change the play, and then he better be right. Roger considered Coach Landry a football genius when it came to strategy. But pride said that he should be able to run his own team, to make his own plays. And Roger later admitted, I faced up to the issue of obedience. Once I learned to obey, there was harmony, fulfillment, and victory. I know a lot of people who are not experiencing harmony, fulfillment, and victory in their lives. Because they're trying to be the play callers of their life. And they've refused simple obedience to God. I talk to students all the time and they say, Trip, how do I end up here? I'm in a mess. I don't have satisfaction in my life. I don't have peace in my life. And I say, tell me about your relationship with God. And nine out of ten times I hear, well, Trip, I go to church. I even read my Bible. I do this. I do that. And I say, no, tell me about your relationship with God. And let's cut to the chase. Is there sin in your life? Because if you are being disobedient to God, you're never going to experience peace in your life. Because we're created to live under the submission of authority. And maximum freedom is found when we learn to live under that authority. And so I tell them, if you stop calling the shots of your life, you may be surprised what kind of peace that you can find. Or sometimes... Students have this idea that I just don't want to miss out. The lie of this world is that by submitting to God in obedience, you're going to miss out on something great. There's this idea that God wants to spoil our fun. God gives us his law because he loves us. Just like I give my children boundaries because I love them. Just like my mom says, don't touch the stove because you might get burned because she loves us. And in obedience to his law, we find freedom. Sometimes we blame God for the mess that we're in. I talk to students and they say, well, yes, I'm in a mess. I'm in a lot of trouble. But you know what? God has a plan. And I say, what? Don't you drag God into your mess and blame him for it. Yes, God has a plan, and God's plan is that you be obedient to his word and that you experience life abundant in him. That's God's plan. People say, well, 
Tripp, do you believe everything happens for a reason? Yeah, I believe everything happens for a reason. But I believe sometimes things happen because we're dumb and we make bad decisions. And we're disobedient to God. Obedience is not always easy. But as David is about to learn, the cost of obedience is nothing compared to the cost of disobedience. Students, write that down if you're taking notes. The cost of obedience is nothing compared to the cost of disobedience. We see in verse 6, And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. This brings us to our second principle in this very tough lesson. A casual approach to God does not change God's holiness. Or another way of saying that is familiarity with the things of God does not change the reality of the sovereignty of God. There's no doubt that Uzzah had become very familiar with the ark. Uzzah was the son of Abinadab. The ark had been at the house of Abinadab for some time. Uzzah's brother was the one who was the caretaker of the ark. Uzzah's house was blessed because the ark of God resided there. No doubt he loved the ark. No doubt he had good intentions when the ox stumbled and and the ark, which was on a cart that it never should have been on in the first place, starts to fall off. And he was just trying. He was meaning well when he goes to steady the ark. But in that moment, perhaps he had become just a little too comfortable around it. See, he had good intentions, but he forgot in that moment about the holiness of God. And in that moment, he made the biggest mistake of his life. I wonder if the things of God become too familiar to us sometimes. Is it possible to become too comfortable? Some of you who know me know that I enjoy going to the gun range and target shooting. Now, one thing I've learned is that there's two people I don't want to be around in a gun range. It's the one that has no clue what they're doing and they don't want anybody to show them. And the other is someone that's a little too comfortable because they've done it for so long. Both are dangerous. I also love riding motorcycles. Love it. But one thing I've learned about riding motorcycles is that the moment you stop fearing and respecting that motorcycle, you're setting yourself up to be hurt. I had a buddy a while back who sold one, and I said, man, why did you sell your motorcycle? That was the coolest motorcycle. And he said, Tripp, I'd become too comfortable. I lost respect and fear for it, and I know that that's a dangerous thing. Have we become too familiar with the things of God? Have we become so comfortable with the things of God that we've lost perspective on God's holiness? Well, what do you mean the things of God, Tripp? What do you mean? How about his word? The last time I was in Haiti, I remember uh, myself and Dr. Bruce Cope, we went up into the mountains to a church to meet with a pastor. And while we're waiting on the pastor to arrive, in the middle of this church, which was sticks and holding a, a, a tattered tarp up, on the center post of this tent, there was a little shelf and there was a Bible sitting on the shelf. And the Bible was beat up, pages falling out of it. It had been rained on, etc. And I thought, huh, I guess they don't know how to take care of a Bible around here. Then the pastor showed up and I mentioned something about the Bible. And he said, yes, that is our church's Bible. 
I said, come again? Yeah, that's our church's Bible and see people walk from all over to come here and to stand here and to read this and to read it to one another. And those pages that had fallen out, yeah, those get passed around and cherished because that is the living word of God. And you know what I remember thinking? I've got 12 Bibles at my house on the shelf and there's some days that not a one of them gets read. Do we lose our perspective on the holiness of God because we're so familiar with it? Your Bible, whether it's leather-bound or hardback or whether you have it in an app on your phone between your Pinterest app and your words with friends, that is the inerrant, infallible, living, perfect Word of God. And I wonder how many times we pick it up just to read a few verses to say we did it and feel good because we have done a good act. That's being familiar, too familiar with the things of God. Or how about church? I wrote a, there's a magazine that Student Ministries puts out each year called Infozine. You're welcome to pick up a copy of the welcome desk. But I included in it this year, just like a journal entry of some of my thoughts. Now this was written to me. Considering how sometimes I make church and I make worship about me instead of about God. And I'm just reflecting here and I want to read a few of my points. It says, what if instead of seeing just how late I can sleep in on Sunday morning and make it here in time. What if I woke up an extra 30 minutes early just to prepare my heart before I come to church. What if instead of worrying about how casual and comfortable I can dress on Sunday morning. I made getting dressed an act of worship, like I'm about to go honor somebody. What if instead of downloading the service bulletin to see if I'm going to like the songs that Steve picked, I download them to consider the words I'm about to sing to a living God? What if instead of singing words like over a thousand hands to raise, or in moments like these, I lift up my hands with my hands in my pockets? What if I actually considered that I'm honoring the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? What if instead of wondering who's going to respond to the invitation, I considered how God wants me to respond every week? What if instead of being concerned about who was around me or where the TV cameras were pointing, I worship like I was in the presence of an almighty God? Is it possible that we have become so familiar with the things of God that we have lost sight? Of the holiness of God. Psalm 111.10 says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding. Have all those who do his commandments. Maybe we like the idea of Jesus is my homeboy. A little better than the idea of fearing God. But Proverbs 19.23 says. The fear of the Lord leads to life. And whoever has it. Rest satisfied. Without the fear of God, we would not be able to understand why we should really even follow Jesus. Without understanding and fearing the Lord, there's no way we can understand the power that's available to us through the Holy Spirit. God wants us to fear Him. God wants us to be mindful of His holiness. Because that's going to lead into a better life, one that we were created for. That brings us to our third point in this tough, tough lesson. In verse 7. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark. 
The third principle, intentions do not prevent consequences of actions. Our intentions do not excuse us from the consequences of our actions. You know, some people say, it's the thought that counts. That's a lie. That's a lie. Imagine with me, if you will, here in about three months, Courtney and I are celebrating our 10th wedding anniversary. And um, imagine with me on that day, January the um, first week in January. um, (laughs) No, trust me, I don't forget it because all my friends remind me it's the weekend of the national championship football game every year. Talk about poor planning. But imagine I go to Courtney and I say, sweetheart, it's our anniversary. And I just want you to know how much I love you. You're a wonderful mother. You're an incredible wife. And I was thinking, what in the world do I get you as a gift? And I thought, you know what you deserve? You deserve one of those all-inclusive cruises to the Caribbean. And I thought that would be the perfect gift for you. Now, when she starts hugging me and says, oh, this is wonderful. This is great. I'm going to go pack now. When do we leave? What do you think would happen if I said, whoa, 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 hold on. I, I didn't say I got that for you. I just said I thought that that would be a good thing. I thought you deserve it. I can't afford to buy, you know, cruise. What are you thinking, woman? You know, I would be sleeping on the couch that night by myself. Or imagine come Christmas time and I wrap up some presents real pretty for my kids and they open them up and they're so excited and they look in and it's empty. And I say, oh, you know what? You know what I thought about putting in there? A nice new Lego set, huh? That's not going to fly. And if we would not dare to consider doing that with those that we love, why do we sometimes do that with God? We try to drill into our students that it's your direction, not your intention, that determines your destination. You can have the best intentions in the world, but it is the everyday choices that you make, whether you're going to be obedient to the word of God or not, that determine your destination, that points your life on a course of where you're going to go. We have all these good intentions that we're going to honor God. We have these intentions in our family. We're going to have family devotions. We're going to make God so important, but life happens and it gets busy. And that new episode of CSI comes on tonight. So we'll do it tomorrow. We'll start these devotions in our family. We have these good intentions to teach our children to love the church. And we say nothing's going to come on Sundays in front of church. But then that coach schedules that ball practice. And well, we don't want to offend the coach. You know how he gets. We don't want to let the team down. So you know what? We're going to go to ball today. But next Sunday... Church is number one again. What do we communicate? See, we get lulled into security by our intentions. See, the enemy would say, as long as you mean to do that, how about you just start it tomorrow? And so these good intentions never turn into actions. And here we are left with regret, remorse, and on the bad end of a tough lesson. In conclusion... Would you consider this with me this morning? Someone once said that good intentions 
or the dinner bell, but to each you got to come to the table. Today, some of us need to stop ringing the bell. We need to stop announcing our intentions to our families, to our friends, to everyone else. And we need to come to the table. Well, how do we do that? Where does it start? It starts with prayer. You may have good intentions in your heart, but you got to take action on that. It starts with talking to God about it. Next is confession. Confessing your sin. The Word of God says that if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then last of all is repentance. Repentance. See, repentance is often seen in such a negative light. Like we imagine an evangelist yelling, You sinner, come to the altar. You bring your dirty sin with you. And it's such a shameful idea of repentance. But let me tell you, repentance is a beautiful thing. Because repentance is an invitation to experience all that God has for you. The invitation today is simple. The invitation today is, will you respond in obedience to God? Will you do it today? See, delayed obedience is disobedience. David finally got his stuff in order, and he came back to God with the right attitude. And God did amazing, amazing things in his life. Will you respond to God in obedience today? Father God, we love you. We thank you. Father, some of us here today may be experiencing a tough lesson in our life. Maybe we've been disobedient to you. Maybe we've been arrogant in thinking that we know more about how our life should go than you know. Father, today we ask for your forgiveness. Father, today we confess our sin before you. And Father, today may we be obedient in responding to you in repentance so we can receive all that you have for us. Father, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to enter into a time of invitation right now. And I want to ask you very boldly to respond to however God is leading you today. Maybe it's a response to repent, to confess your sin, to turn from it. Maybe it's a response to commit your heart and your life to Him, to trust Him as your Lord and your Savior. But a response to God requires action. Good intentions Don't change a thing. Good intentions are the dinner bell. The invitation is to come eat. I want you to imagine even this altar this morning as a dinner table. Maybe you've been announcing your intentions for years even, but today you know that you'll never find peace. You'll never find joy. You'll never find satisfaction apart from being obedient to the Lord. Respond to him even now. Let's stand together as we sing.